Welcome back to the channel. By popular demand today, I'm going to walk through some thoughts, some slides for vaccination under five. The AHIP met this morning, the Advisory Committee of Immunologic Practices for the US CDC, and the Verbac and FDA have been busy this week. And so I have poured through the uh, 200, 300 pages of documentation from the US FDA as they review the Pfizer and the Moderna products. Uh, I'm not going to talk about uh, everything. I'm going to focus on vaccination under five uh, rather than on, you know, Moderna's uh, bid to also vaccinate adolescents. And um, I think I'm going to view this through a policy lens. Every single one of my slides will come from the either Verbac slides by the FDA, by Moderna, or the packet of information that was distributed by the FDA. All right, with that introduction, let's hit it. Vax under five. This was a figure that I see was used in the introduction. It was rates of monthly COVID-associated hospitalizations by vaccination status among children and adolescents five to 17 years old. And what it shows you, the dotted lines are the troublesome. Those are the adolescents 12 to 17 who are unvaccinated and the children 5 to 11 who are unvaccinated. And the solid lines are the ones who have been vaccinated at least with the primary series. And the argument here is that these vaccines, even though the randomized controlled trials that led to authorization weren't powered or suited uh, to assess reductions in hospitalization, of course, they'd have to be mega trials, hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions in each arm. Uh, you see here from observational data that there's a reduction. I want to put a bit of asterisk here. This is an observational data set. And of course, there are big problems with observational data. One big problem, we have to admit, there is a difference between parents of kids 5 to 11 who rushed out and were that one-third of parents who quickly got their kids vaccinated and the two-thirds of parents who didn't. They have differences not only in terms of getting that vaccine, but also in terms of how they're living their lives, how, how many precautions they're taking, how they go about their business, maybe even their underlying comorbidities or socioeconomic status or their political valence. They have lots of other differences. And so these types of figures, even if they attempt to adjust for those things, are always incapable of adjusting perfectly for those things. Proof of that is if they were capable of doing it, we would never run randomized trials. We would just debut products and use observational data sets. Moreover, the US FDA has commissioned in uh, multiple studies to see the concordance between these two study designs and they've press released, although they have not yet uh, come forward with the final results, that even the most rigorous type of observational methodology, the target trial methodology, failed to recapitulate clinical trials. We'll find out about that. But there's a long history of observational data sets and randomized trials on the same question, and there's discordance, in part because of this, you know, unmeasured confounding that you can't adjust for. There's another problem here, which is that it is really very difficult in these large data sets to separate somebody who was hospitalized with COVID and from COVID. I know it's we're still stuck on this, but it really is true. If somebody comes into the hospital and they have diarrhea, um, and that diarrhea is uh, not due to COVID, but they swab that person and they test positive for COVID, in some of these data sets, that will be coded as a COVID-associated hospitalization. But they could have diarrhea for another reason. Maybe they took a lot of laxatives, or maybe they have a bacterial infection, maybe they ate some bad food, you know, a different reason than COVID-19 that may be misattributed as a COVID-19 hospitalization. And then if you add on top a vaccine that I don't know if it decreases MISC hospitalization and severe disease, because I don't know that from randomized data in at least the 5 to 11-year-old and the 12 to 17-year-old age groups, but I do know that there is a short-term reduction in symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, meaning that 
for a short period of time, you are less likely to have a symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection. You are also likely, less likely, to, for a short period of time, to be less likely to carry the virus, slightly less likely compared to someone who didn't get vaccinated. So how do I know that this reduction in COVID-associated hospitalization is a reduction in COVID cases that would in and of itself led to hospitalization or someone coming to the hospital for a different reason whose nose happens to contain the COVID virus. And as long as we live in an environment where there's universal swabbing on entry, that's going to muddy the water there. So these are the two biggest reasons. The first reason, you know, residual confounding. The second reason is that there are some people who you are incidentally finding COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 carriage in the nose. They're hospitalized for a different reason. And if you have something that clears the nose just a little bit, it will result in this sort of figure. And this is a point that Willie Jalad and others have made. So, you know, these cannot be taken as gospel. These must always be taken with a grain of salt. This is not high quality evidence. It's not randomized evidence. And I'm going to come back to this topic. We could have had randomized evidence. Next slide. COVID-19 deaths in children and adolescents by age. And this is the National Center of Health Statistics data. You know, they say there's 202 deaths, and that is a tragedy. Uh, any child dying of COVID-19 is a, is a deep, uh, deep, deep tragedy. Um, I think it's noteworthy to point out that this is over a two-year period of time. This is not a one-year period. This is from January to, you know, um, all, of, all, of, all of 2020, all of 2021, and even a few months of 2022. So it's quite a long period of time. Um, one must always keep risk in perspective. You know, these are the risks, but... This is not the biggest threat to kids of this age, as I'll show you in a few slides. It's also such a different illness in children than in adults. You know, if COVID-19 only had this pattern, this impact in six to four years old, for instance, and it had no impact on any other ages, I'm not even sure we would have even detected the virus. I mean, it would have gone beneath the radar, may not have even been detected. It might've just fallen within influenza-like illness or something like that. We might not have even known this virus to be, we might not have even found it or sequenced it, et cetera. I don't know that, you know? I mean, I think it's a really sort of philosophical question. One doesn't know. It's only because it had such a devastating impact on older people that it really quickly came to our attention. Here's another way to look at the data. This is from uh, publicly available data, and actually the numbers are very close to uh, 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 some CDC data. And so I think it's, 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 it's a fair, it's certainly a fair relative comparison when you look at zero to 17, yes, unfortunately, people in that age group died. But look at the older age groups. I mean, this is tremendously steep age gradient and a disease of older people. I mean, that's what COVID-19 is. It always was. It always is. Um, most of what we did to younger people, I think history will show, led to disproportionate damage to the young people, their goals, their career, their opportunity, without countervailing benefit to them. And I think I'm going to show you a slide that shows you why I say that, because we did all these things to them and seroprevalence is still through the roof. In other words, they got infected anyway, so it's not like you spared them the infection. And then the other thing I think is that um, school and other activities for young people was tremendously important. And we really didn't, we didn't acknowledge that trade-off in any way, shape, or form. We panicked and we marginalized people who wanted to draw attention to that trade-off. This is a figure from their slide deck from the U.S. Uh, the, the FDA is presenting this slide in their advisory meeting to discuss this vaccine. So this is a slide that's lingering in the minds of the panelists as they vote. And what it says is, here's where COVID-19 ranks as a cause of death among kids of this age group. It's the fifth cause, fifth cause, fourth cause, fourth cause. They cite this paper. But this is, in fact, I mean, arguably misinformation. And there's a great post that a lot of people are tweeting. Um, it's by a uh, just a regular person 
person. You know, she's a regular person from Georgia. She goes by, and she's only known as Kelly. I haven't seen her last name. Um, and she has been quite good at data analysis, and I hate to say it. Um, she's giving a lot of experts a run for their money because she is quite competent and quite good at this. And she has quickly identified that this slide is, in, in fact, erroneous. And there's two big reasons why it was erroneous. One, that the preprint leverages data that not only had COVID-19 as a um, as an underlying uh, cause of death, but also a contributing cause of death, which 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 means that on a death certificate, you know, there are many slots you could put in for other things going on with the patient that may not have contributed to the death, and you could put this in um, as as a as something else that the patient is experiencing that is not directly linked to the cause of death. It's not the underlying cause of death or the root cause of death. And that's fine as long as we all compare apples to apples. But when you start comparing apples to oranges, underlying cause of death to contributing causes of death and underlying cause of death, then of course, it's going to inflate the role of COVID-19. That's the first point she makes. And this is a failure that other people who write blog posts that get covered by news outlets and retweeted by Ashish Jha have also made. The other problem is that they're actually looking at cumulative deaths over more than one year and comparing it against annualized deaths for other causes per year. And of course, that's like double counting COVID-19. And I think her point is well taken. These are not, I mean, the person who's doing this is obviously a very clever person. Kudos to this person, Kelly. But these are not brilliant points. I mean, these are basic points that when you want to make comparisons, you have to count things equally and you have to look at equal periods of time. Otherwise, you're wasting my time uh, and you're wasting everyone's time. The problem is, in this case, you're wasting time in a very important place um, and you have exaggerated the impact of COVID-19 in this age group as a cause of death. And in fact, they showed you this slide, but when she corrects it, she gets to, you know, instead of 5544, and she also includes under one here that they didn't have on their slide, she gets to 9, 8 in a four-way tie, 8 in a four-way tie, 8 in a two-way tie, and sixth leading cause of death, which is a little bit less sensational, a little bit less sensational. And when you have less sensational statistics, that may introduce sobriety and the need to think rigorously about data. So I think her blog post is excellent. I think the CDC is falling on their face uh, by citing, and the FDA is falling on their face by citing preprints that are unpublished that have really structural falls, flaws that uh, would not survive peer review. And you can see Alistair Monroe, Francois Ballot, others from the UK are just really pointing out the failures of this of this preprint. It took me a long time to find this, you know, and I asked Twitter to find it and somebody identified it. I believe it is, and anyone can tell me if I'm wrong, this is only available at minute 90 of the FDA advisory committee meetings on the YouTube channel. It is not available. I cannot find it anywhere else. And if somebody can knows this slide anywhere else, the slide is entitled FF4 and FF5. I think these are like proprietary Moderna slides that they only showed in the briefing, as is often the case in drug advisory meetings. This is the cumulative incidence. Uh, a cumulative incidence of the CDC's case definition of symptomatic COVID-19 starting after randomization, participants two through five years of age. And um, it is, uh, uh, um, you know, it is what it is. This is what you see. You see that um, this vaccine uh, is the red curve and the blue curve is the placebo. And there is some reduction um, in symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, with a vaccine effectiveness of, I think it says on the slide, if I'm reading it correctly, 38% with a confidence interval goes from like 18 to 53%. Um, what will happen when you follow these people out longer? I mean, there's a little bit of a tail of the curve and it looks like it's closing, but that's obviously based on few events because there's not a lot of people at risk at that time interval and a lot of censoring. 
few events, but the curve is closing. That's why there's a big step. That may be even one event. It's a, it's a huge step because the number of people at risk are very low. I always say there are tails and fairy tales, and one shouldn't put too much stock in tails, especially when they're less than 10% of entry participants at risk. That said, that said, we have a lot of data that suggests that this is going to be a transient vaccine effectiveness, that with time, we see in many, many data sets the, effect, the vaccine effectiveness against the Omicron variant with time from this vaccine, which is a vaccine directed against the Wuhan sequence that is slightly modified for stabilization purposes. And I think each company has a slightly different modification. Um, the vaccine effectiveness of that old Wuhan strain against, against Omicron with time gets very, very close to zero. So I think this is the best case scenario. This is the best case, transient, short-term, symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 reduction. That should be noted. That should be noted. This is what it looks like in six to 23 months. I would say broadly com compatible. And again, because there's so few events at risk, there's an extremely volatile um, cumulative incidence towards the end. Most of these people did not have SARS-CoV-2 at entry. Most of these people did not have SARS-CoV-2 at entry. Um, this is from the Verbach Moderna documentation. You can see, uh, go to the middle part, uh, my finger won't be able to come on that because of the way I do the digital editing. Um, it says baseline SARS-CoV-2 status negative and positive, and it says you know negative 234, positive 12, um, and, and it's and it's looking at the geometric mean antibody titers here by, by baseline status. But the more important point is the baseline status. This is mostly a study of people. Both of these studies, the Pfizer and Moderna, are mostly a study of kids who did not already have COVID-19. That's very different than where we are now, where most kids have already had COVID-19. And that, I think, is a problem. It's a problem for generalizability. In the same way, extrapolating Paxlet of data from unvaccinated people to vaccinated people is a problem because that is an incredible risk modifier, event modifier. Extrapolating data from, from people who have not yet met and cleared the virus to kids who have met and cleared the virus, I think is deeply problematic. Every piece of available evidence would suggest that a child who had and recovered from COVID-19 is at less risk of having COVID-19 a second time and being hospitalized and dying from the second infection of COVID-19 than a child who has never met COVID-19. And as such, the potential upper bound absolute risk reduction for any vaccination after a child has recovered from COVID-19 uh, for a future COVID-19 bout, the absolute risk reductions have to be smaller because the absolute risk is smaller, much, much smaller. And whether or not there is an absolute risk reduction, whether or not there is a relative risk reduction, I think is an open scientific question. What would I like to see? In a world where our number one commitment was to evidence-based medicine, I, and in a world where there wasn't a lot of parental anxiety and a lot of lobbying pressure on, on, the, on the administration to make this available, in a world like that, I think you would reasonably, it would be totally fair for somebody to say, let's really answer this question. We're using an old vaccine, Wuhan strain. Most of these kids, many of these kids may have had and recovered from COVID, had Omicron at this point. They've had Omicron, which is a very different strain. Um, what would happen if you did a mega randomized control trial of kids as they are in this moment, randomized to this vaccine or no vaccine and measured the endpoints we care about, severe disease, MISC, hospitalization, death as the primary endpoint, some composite of those four, um, symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 as a secondary endpoint, and antibody titers, I mean, I, 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 you can collect it as a correlative. I wouldn't be that interested in measuring it. That's a surrogate endpoint. It doesn't really mean, it doesn't matter. I think you would be perfectly justified in an evidence-based medicine world to call for that randomized control trial. Pfizer might say that's going to be really expensive, and you would just point out that Pfizer has 100 billion reasons why it's they're able to do that. They've earned a lot of money. They are earning money, and they're earning money because of a society that has gatekeepers in place for products. 
although those gates are not very high, um, it is an indulgence of society that they're earning 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 that kind of sums of money. Um, and so I think that they have an obligation to demonstrate that in, in a randomized control trial. Post hoc, hoc efficacy data. And I think, are we looking at uh, Pfizer or Moderna here? I think we're looking at, yes, uh, uh, BioNTech 162B. We're looking at the Pfizer data here. Um, they present this a number of times in um, the packets. They call it post hoc efficacy. When they finally went ahead and issued the emergency use authorization, they were very clear that with Moderna, they were willing to endorse some provisional vaccine efficacy by age. And I think it was like roughly 50 or 30, depending on the two age groups. For Pfizer, they were very clear to say that we are not comfortable. I mean, they don't say they're not comfortable. They say that we are not we are not stating a vaccine efficacy because the data are not reliable to draw conclusions about efficacy. That's what they say in the EUA. Here, of course, what they're doing is they're showing you rates of cases by when they got the shot. And I, some people say that like, oh, look, it's very effective seven days after dose three. You, you don't get to play this game in randomized control trials. You don't get to say, we'll start the clock mm, 20 days after the third dose. No, you own it from the beginning. You own it from the beginning. You randomize and you do an intention to treat analysis saying by people, by pursuing the course you tell people to do, pursuing a three-course vaccination strategy, are you less likely to get SARS-CoV-2 than if you don't pursue that course? You can't say that, well, if you go down this course, and by the way, if you're not one of those people who get SARS-CoV-2 in the first, before the first three doses, only thereafter, and only based on very scant events, there appears to be a favorable vaccine effectiveness. You don't get to play that game. That's a very, that's absolutely ridiculous. And I've never heard of anyone getting to play this game. You own it from the outset. Um, if, in fact, if in a perfect world, you make a product so good that the moment after the first dose, you've halted all the, all, all, um, all sequela, all endpoint, and then the subsequent dose may beef up the response or something like that. Um, in a perfect world, you know, that, uh, I mean, with a perfect product, that, that would be what you would be hoping for. So you don't get to play this game vaccine efficacy by different cut points. I think it's quite silly. I look at just, you know, the first occurrence of COVID-19 after, I would prefer randomization, but the table is dose one. So it's sort of a modified intention treat analysis, but we're talking about a vaccine efficacy of 14% minus 21% to 38%. When you look at seven days after dose three, the confidence interval goes from minus 370% to 99%, which is a pretty big conference, a pretty big confidence interval when you can, you know, I always joke that, you know, you can park a school bus in the margin for nine for you here, you know, you can park like a, uh, you can, you can park like an aircraft carrier. I mean, I've never seen, a, I've never seen a confidence interval so big. Yeah. Somebody who's looking at trials called me and said, is that really, is that even possible? You can go to a minus 300. I, mean, I guess, I don't know. I don't even know what that means scientifically, I guess. But anyway, I don't even want to think about it. It's just scant events and really inappropriate. And I think that's why finally when push comes to shove and they actually issue the EUA, they say, let's, let's just stay out. Let's just stay out of this. We're just going to say, you know, it's unreliable. We're not going to, we're not going to put a stamp down on a vaccine efficacy. Here's what the Kaplan-Meier curves look like. Um, you know, there's the old saying in oncology, if you can fit a laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary session of the national meeting. Here, I think, uh, I think you got to have a pretty steady hand. And I've never had a hand that study. I've never had a hand that study. Um, post hoc efficacy from dose one, two to four, Pfizer BioNTech, you're talking about a 30% vaccine efficacy. Um, you know, modest. Uh, uh, and even even that post uh, seven days after dose three, 82% with a confidence interval that crosses one. You know, very, very modest. And again, this is best case scenario. With time, I think the two curves are going to start to converge. They're not going to further 
further deviate. I mean, every other piece of data would suggest that this case looks a little bit better. Looks a little bit better, I'd say. Here, I even I do think I could I do think that I could hold a laser pointer between the curves, and I'm happy to give that plenary session. Um, here again, I want to make the point that this is again, 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 mostly, mostly baseline SARS-CoV-2 zero negative. These are mostly kids who didn't have it. Only six um, in the six to 23 months category had already had COVID-19. Here, what you're looking at is a table that's kind of complicated, but it's telling you the mean geometric antibody titer by the positive and negative baseline serology. And that number in parentheses is the sample, the number of people who meet that criteria. And you can see it's six to 139, 13 to 204. Again, mostly a randomized trial of kids who haven't had it. Mostly a randomized trial of kids who hadn't had it. Um... Very interesting to me. There was this was I found in the Moderna documentation. Sensitivity analysis accounting for different COVID nineteen testing methods during Omicron. Let me just read it to you. During the Omicron surge, in person illness visits were not always possible due to COVID nineteen restrictions. Results of home test. Well, that's not the only reason. Also, people weren't that sick, so they tested it, and they had home testing, so they didn't feel like going into the doctor. Results of home testing were recorded, and participants were encouraged to obtain a confirmatory RT PCR following a positive home test. Therefore, cases identified from a positive home test without a confirmatory RT-PCR were not included in the protocol-specified analyses. This is a big deal, actually. Everyone's talking about protecting you against symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, but they're not talking about people who are testing positive at home. It's a big deal, actually. What you really want is, I mean, what you really want is to have empowered people so that anybody who tested positive, that's being scored in the primary endpoint of symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, if we're going to say these home tests are reliable enough to, I don't know, uh, use it as the criteria to have weddings or whatever, and all these people saying how great these tests are, then I think maybe we should score it as the endpoint. That should be part of that. Again, I don't think it should ever be the primary endpoint. I think severe disease, MIC, hospitalization, death, that composite should be the primary. But I think as a secondary endpoint, it should be any positive COVID-19 test, including home tests, because that's what people are mostly testing on. Here's what it says. Um, they've included this they were not including the protocol specified analyses, but we're going to do a sensitivity analysis around that. So given the number of potential cases based on home testing increased during the time period due to greater availability of home tests and the reluctance of many families to bring their kids on site during Omicron surge, also because they're probably not that sick, um, a sensitivity analysis of vaccine efficacy was performed to include all reported cases of COVID-19 irrespective of tests performed in location of testing, which could include RT-PCR performed at a CLIA certified central laboratory, RT-PCR at a local laboratory, home testing at an unknown testing modality. Results are shown in table 62. My favorite tables, the 62nd one. As expected with the broader allowance of test results, the number of COVID-19 cases and SARS-CoV-2 infections were higher than in the protocol-specified vaccine efficacy analysis. As shown in Table 62, vaccine effectiveness estimates in this sensitive analysis were lower than the protocol-specified VE analyses. However, the confidence interval also overlaps, so it's possible, you know, it's the same. But here's the vaccine eff efficacy here. You're talking about 28.5%. You know, it's, it's further diminishing and that really actually makes you even more worried that what you're seeing in those cumulative frequency curves is literally the best, the best snapshot. You know, it's like my profile picture. It's the perfect angle, the perfect lighting. And if you look at me any other way, it's not going to look as good. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing someone's profile picture. It's really the most favorable lighting. This is, I think, actually a pretty useful sensitivity analysis. Now, this is Moderna. I looked for it. And please, if you, somebody who found this for Pfizer... Can somebody um, reply in the comments or or just tweet it at me or something like that? I'm kind of, I want to see this for Pfizer. I, I, don't, I don't know if I saw this kind of sensitive analysis for Pfizer. They may have done it, and that might be part of the reason why they're not willing to put the stamp down on a vaccine efficacy estimate and saying that, you know, that's too few events, it's unreliable. Um, I'd like to see that.
Ah, this is another very interesting thing. This is what it says in, in the documentation. I believe this was in the Pfizer 150-page packet towards the end. Benefits in individuals previously infected with SARS-CoV-2. Descriptive post-dose-3 efficacy analyses do not include cases in previously infected participants. However, observational data with other COVID-19 vaccines have demonstrated an added benefit of vaccination to protection conferred by natural immunity. Additionally, for individuals previously infected with Omicron, a vaccine based on the ancestral protein provide greater breadth of protection to the O. That second sentence is just pure speculation, but I really looked at case 53 because what they're saying is that, um, you know, even though we don't know for kids who've already had COVID-19, if any of this data applies to them or if this vaccine is going to further protect them, other studies have shown that there's an added benefit for somebody who had COVID-19 recovered and got vaccinated for future COVID-19 than if they had COVID-19 recovered and didn't get vaccinated. And that's reference 53. And I was like super interested because I was like, oh, really? There is such a study? I would have loved to see it. And of course, it's an MMWR and it's a test negative case control design. And the more I look at it, I was like, oh, God, this is not good. I mean, the problem with the study is just that it's also, it's very unreliable. It's a test negative case control design. And the biggest problem is it's a huge, um, huge sort of administrative level data set. And the biggest problem is that they, again, come back to that big, big problem, which is that they, they're using COVID-associated hospitalization, which is a testing, which is testing positive and one of some constellation of symptoms, but they don't know for sure that that person is having those symptoms from the COVID or having those symptoms from something else and the COVID was just along for the ride. And we know that the more you're getting vaccinated, the more you're probably less likely to have just some chronic or just have some carriage in the nose. You're less likely to have that nose be test positive. So again, you're not really getting at the from versus with issue, this really deep issue. And in retrospect, I guess, I do regret that I didn't write an op-ed in like the beginning of COVID on from versus with and how important it would be because it's turned out to be sort of a very central, a central pro, uh, not a problem, it's just a challenge in, in studies from versus with. It's less of a challenge in randomized studies, of course. It's always less of a challenge in randomized studies because you have like just aggregate counts. You could also do a randomized study presumably and look at like all-cause hospitalizations and try to like reduce all-cause, I mean, you could, you know, and, and that would be a nice clean endpoint and you wouldn't suffer from this sort of attribution issues. But as long as we don't do that and, and we're not doing that, and as long as we're doing it in sort of this observational set, um, you really do, you're really just really plagued by this, I think. Um, yeah, and, and you might also even be plagued by... Um, I mean, it's just a thought that hit me while I was talking is that like, I mean, everyone is getting swabbed on entry when they have diarrhea, but maybe the doctor is like slightly more likely to swab again for COVID-19, test another day, a test a day later if they're having diarrhea or, you know, cough or something. If they hadn't gotten that vaccine, then had they? And so there's another sort of, you know, observational bias there that wouldn't happen if it was randomized and blinded, et cetera. Okay. Um, and, and I hope you understood what I was saying there. This is a key point, and this is um, from the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech uh, uh, vaccine. Seven cases, uh, this is about severe disease. Seven cases in participants two through four met the criteria for severe COVID-19. Six in the vaccine group, two cases occurred post-unblinding, and one in the placebo group. I'm sorry, did, did you say six in the vaccine and one in the placebo? Okay, I mean, we can't dwell on this too much. These are very, very small numbers, and it doesn't mean that it's actually worse. I would never conclude that from these data. It just, just shows you. We are running these trials and they are just so incapable of measuring the thing people actually care about, which is for the kid that you, the kid in your life 
who've probably already had COVID-19, I'm going to show you in the last one of the last slides, do they benefit by getting this shot in terms of MISC, severe disease, hospitalization, and death? Do they have a reduction? And what you're saying is this trial is so poorly powered you got seven cases and six were in the vaccine arm and one was in the control arm. And, and, you know, we just throw up our hands. I just say, the, you know, the conference interval goes from minus one million to positive one million. I mean, it's even worse than that 300. Um, they just have no idea. And that is, I don't know. I just really think it's just terrible. I mean, Jonas Salk was able to randomize 400,000 kids. We're 70 years in the future. Evidence-based medicine has gotten a lot better. And Pfizer has gotten tens of billions of dollars from these products. And there's 20% of parents who would like jump over, uh, like crawl through a minefield to get their kid this vaccine. You know, I think there's 80% who are reluctant, but there's 20% who will crawl through a minefield. I'll show you data to support that claim in a minute um, to get this. So you have like huge desire. You have this huge like call. You could say like, you know, if you, if you, if you really want your kid to get a shot, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do to enroll your kid in a randomized control trial. They have an opportunity to get the shot. I mean, if you believe you want them to get it, better you get it in a randomized fashion so we learn something. Like, it does it help? Does it hurt? Can we halt it if it's, you know, if there's some issues? And, you know, um, and then the primary endpoint should be severe disease, MIC, hospitalization, and death. And that's what we should have done. Pfizer had to have had that obligation. Uh, I'm confident history will look back and, and feel like we capitulated to the companies. And I, I think that's going to be, it's going gonna, it's gonna to wear poorly. Here's the, the slide. This is what they showed in there. Zero prevalence of infection-induced SARS-CoV-2 antibodies among all ages. Um, that the red is one to four, 68%. Five to 11 is 77%. 12 to 17 is 74%. Um, and these are infection-induced. I think these are anti-nucleocapsid antibodies, not anti-spike antibodies. So these are not generated by, by vaccination. What does this tell us? I mean, what does it tell us? I think it tells us a lot of things that any restriction on kids one to four, or pretty much any restriction, I mean, yeah, certainly kids one to four, and probably we'll say five to 11 too, because they only got the vaccine very recently. I mean, you're talking about three quarters of all children suffered these restrictions for years. They're masking, not allowed on play dates, kept away from friends, all this bullshit, okay? And three quarters of them got COVID anyway before you could even get them the vaccine. That's how bad your policy was. You would be better off had you never placed a restriction on them and you allowed them to live because they would have gotten it and they would have done just the same as they did because they're young and their outcomes are like super good at that young age. And they wouldn't have had missed a school and had learning losses and had to have them mask and not have play dates and all these things that, you know, their life wouldn't have been so heavily disrupted. And as a percentage of their life, I mean, what are we talking about? 50% of their life so far has been disrupted. That's ridiculous. That's unbelievable. An unbelievable penalty that they have paid um, that is not commensurate with the risks they faced. Um, that's one lesson of this. The other lesson is the trials that you're showing me did not have representation like this. We talk about representation. Everyone wants representation in trials. I do too. But that also means that if the population has zero positive antibodies in, you know, three quarters of people, you need to do a trial that has that representative population. You can't cite some garbage case and test negative case control study. The last thing. They show this. This is another way they're saying, like, why do we really need this? Percent of parents who say in the past year they or another adult in the household left a job or changed work schedules to take care of their kids, and it's like through the roof. Okay, yeah, this is terrible. And this is the thing that I that everyone hears more than anything else, which is 
these disruptions are terrible. Quarantine and closures and this and one kid had it and now the class is out for two weeks and somebody may have been exposed. They have to test negative and they tested and it was like positive, but it was like kind of positive. They have to stay home five more days and test negative. And nobody even keeps, and everybody has their own made up rules. And you know, there's some CDC guidance that's literally pulled out of someone's ass because there's no randomized data. There's no randomized actual like human data here. It's all based on, you know, lots of sort of uh, circumstantial data at best. But we have to remember, it is not the virus doing this. It is human beings creating rules that have crippled us, crippled ours, crippled schools, quarantine policies that we created. You could have had a rule that said, if they feel fine, send them. And if they don't look, if they don't look fine, keep them home. The, and that rule has existed from circa dawn of human history to 20. 20. I mean, that was the time that we had that rule. They look good, send them. They don't look good, don't send them. Uh, that was the rule for thousands of years. And then for two years, you have all these new rules that nobody ever had before. And they're incredibly disruptive. And, and three quarters of kids got COVID anyway, even though you disrupted lives so much that parents have to quit jobs. And now you're saying the vaccine is going to save you, like the vaccine is coming as if it's going to save. But the problem with that is that the vaccine efficacy even the best case like looking at the profile picture in the right light is like 30 percent and if you looked at home testing it goes down and actually it's mostly in kids who didn't already have omicron and now most of them had omicron i mean what are you arguing what are you arguing this is a huge problem it's a human created problem change the policies you don't need to offer a vaccine that's barely going to slow contagion which I, as long as you keep the policy and you have this vaccine, I don't, I think these numbers will continue to be terrible for one more year. These numbers are a huge policy problem, actually. If I were in the in the White House, the first thing I would do is rip down all these stupid policies because they're not, they're not helping anybody. I really don't believe they've helped it. I don't believe they've helped anybody and I don't believe they're helping anybody. You can randomize them if you wish. I wouldn't even randomize them. They're just so stupid. Other countries are not doing it, especially in, in Northern Europe. Sweden, Norway, Denmark, you know, these countries are, they're better than our country about taking care of kids. They don't mask toddlers. They didn't close schools at all in Sweden for elementary school kids. They're not doing that because they're reckless or unwise. You know, they're, they have always been better than our country. Progressives like myself, we used to know that they were better. We would always tell people that why can't we be as good as them? They're better. They feed the kids better nutrition. They take care of kids better. They have better parental leave policies. They're better at taking valuing children in their country than we are in our country. We used to say that, but during COVID-19, somehow our brains broke and we think that they're evil all of a sudden and we're the good ones. No, no, we're the bad ones. They're just as good as they ever were. Don't ever forget that Sweden is the good one. You're, you're the bad one. You're not the good one. You got, you got it all backwards. You got it all backwards. They were always the good one and they still are. And somehow you've told yourself a different story. Okay, this is the takeaway slide. I mean, whatever. Make it available. Don't make it available. The only thing I'd say is like, you know, don't mandate it. Um, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I think the data is extremely, as I've described here. I mean, it, they didn't look at the right. End, they didn't look at the endpoints. It's not really applicable to the, the the people who are, you know, the kids who are out there who are like mostly have already had COVID. But proof is in the pudding. You know, you can talk whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. This is the actual percentage on their own slide of Americans who are like actually getting their kids vaccinated. And you know. That bottom dotted line is kids 5 to 11. And it's at least one dose is 35% as of June 1st, 2020. And fully vaccinated is like one, it's roughly one in three. And, you know, this is, I suspect it's going to be lower. 
it's going to be lower because more people have just had their kid get over Omicron and they're going to legitimately ask themselves, like, do I really need to do it for my four-year-old who just had a runny nose? I tested it. He or she had an Omicron and, you know, they stayed home and, you know, um, they're legitimately going to wonder. So I, I suspect it will plateau around 20%. I think I saw an economist say something similar, you know, and um, wisdom of the crowd. You know, sometimes, you know, Americans are, are smart people. I mean, I think on a number of things, um, I think I, I agree with Americans' wisdom. Like uh, when the moment masks weren't required on airplanes, like nobody did it anymore, even though everyone said like, oh, they really are going to keep doing it. But of course they didn't. They stopped doing it. Because Americans, I think, have a like we have a gut feeling of like risk and benefit, and if we're not like being, you know, compelled to do things by people whose risks benefit calculators are broken in their heads, you know, we we end up doing what we think our risk benefit calculator is. So I think it'll it'll come out there. I mean, you know, there'll be a, a fifth of people, parents who are very anxious that get it. I think some have said that we need to make it available because some of these anxious parents are really prohibiting their kids from any sort of social activity to their kids' detriment. And by making it available, you will assuage the anxiety and thus the parent will let the kid participate. There are a lot of problems with that. Number one, we don't, as a general rule, uh, give products out to people to assuage anxiety. We try to correct misperceptions about risk directly. We don't give a product if we don't believe it has a favorable efficacy risk profile to assuage anxiety. We don't give a kid a product to treat a parent's anxiety. That's one. Two, I think maybe it won't even assuage anxiety because the worry is that many of these kids who get vaccinated will test positive. Proof of that is that the, con that the vaccine curve still keeps going up. The cumulative frequency is not halting. It's going up, 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 up with time. And it's going to keep going up, 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 up with time. And whether you vaccinate these kids or not, whether I get boosted or not, we're all going to get, I mean, not all, I think 93 to 98% will get a breakthrough infection eventually. And so the person who's really worried that they don't want their kid to get COVID-19 may feel some reassurance of getting vaccinated, but they may continue to go back to their very sort of um, uh, 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 restricted uh, lifestyle. And so I'm not sure that that's even going to work out the way people think. Um, is that the last slide? Yep. So, you know, those are my thoughts on this issue. Um, I think um, it is not unreasonable, and we ought to have gotten a 400, 500, 600, 1 million, 2 million person randomized control trial. I think it is not unreasonable, and it is possible that we should have enrolled people who mostly were seropositive because most Americans already are. I think the fact seropositivity went so high despite two years of restrictions on kids, and it went so high in many kids who have not been vaccinated before they became seropositive, suggests that those restrictions were misplaced and were erroneous and have done great damage without any countervailing benefit because I don't think it is possible to benefit a child by putting restrictions on them if they test if they become seropositive prior to vaccination anyway that person's fate was just harmed and they might have lived normally recovered from COVID-19 earlier in their life and had like two good years so I think that that's just proof that the policy is erroneous I think that um most of the claims people make are very highly speculatory and erroneous. I've seen people say that, like, well, you do this to make sure the kid um, lowers MISC. Again, there is no prospective randomized trial data to support that claim. You do this because we know in 5 to 11-year-olds, uh, the vaccine lowers hospitalization. Again, that's not from randomized data. That's from observational data. It suffers from two deep problems. One, residual confounding, that these people are different than the people who are not doing it. And two, that you really have not come up with a good strategy to separate hospitalization with an incidental nose swab versus hospitalization where you are hospitalized because you got very sick from COVID-19. You've not solved that problem in any data set. And the more you look at big data and you need to look at big data so you get the power to get that p-value, the less and less... Uh, 
accurate you probably are in your COVID-19 hospitalizations. If you looked at very granular EMR data, you might be able to be quite accurate about that, but you just won't have the power to see a signal because these are very, very infrequent events. And that's the real lesson. Most kids, the risk to them is small from COVID-19 as a cause of death. It is lower than the CDC's erroneous slide. Um, most kids have already had COVID and recovered. Uh, all available data would suggest that their risk of getting COVID a second time in the absence of some, uh, w without like some new variant springing up that's totally different, which would change all these rules, but most data would suggest their risk is even lower. It's always very difficult to make a healthy person better off. Um, and um, more than anything, there's a lot of uncertainty here and experts would be much better off, much better off if the messaging was uncertainty. Like, yes, this is an option. You know, some people are very eager to do it. We think overall the safety profile is good, and I will, of course, agree the safety profile overall is good. I mean, you know, uh, myocarditis, of course, mostly a post-pubescent syndrome, and uh, and that's a big problem in the adolescent boys, I think, but for this group, it's not really on my radar. It's not something I'm super worried about. I think it's mostly safe, um, but I think um, uh, we should be very, very uh, equivocal about claiming that we know that it's, um, you know, I, I would never tell somebody, I know it lowers MIC. I don't know that. I don't know about severe disease. I don't know about hospitalization. I don't know about death. And I certainly don't know about those things. And somebody who already just had Omicron, I certainly don't know those things. And I think it's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know. We could have made that. We could have learned. I mean, we had the money and we had the, uh, uh, we had people motivated and we could have compelled Pfizer, but we chose not to know. We don't, and now we don't know. We don't know. And so since we don't know, we can't say. Um, but when you say when you don't know, then you play a very dangerous game. And you know you can do observational studies to yield whatever result you want, and the first few passes will yield the result you want. But with time, there'll be more sobriety, and sobriety brings better and better observational methods. Um, and sobriety may not bring you the answers you wish. Um, so those are my thoughts. Kids vaccine, under five, long video, got into the details, got into the weeds. This is what you get on this channel. You subscribe, yeah, you're gonna get, 50% uh, of what you're gonna get is a very deep dive in a cancer clinical trial. Uh, sometimes your head may hurt a little bit, but uh, for me, I, li I like that stuff. Um, I like to think more about um, you know, the limitations of well-done randomized studies, because I think that's like where we should be focusing and less about um, you know, all the flaws of observational studies, which are like very obvious to me and uh, not that interesting just like um, you know, somebody who works in technology wants to work on like the newest app and not like try to rebuild a radio. You know, I mean, why are we, why are we going back to primitive technology? If we're not doing as good a job as, um, as Jonas Salk uh, in terms of randomized evidence, uh, then we gotta look in the mirror and say, what happened in the last 70 years? Uh, why are we not at least doing as well as uh, he did? Those are my thoughts. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below, subscribe to the channel, recommend the video to a friend and colleague, send them the link. Also, you can download it on my uh, podcast feed, um, Plenary Session Podcast, um, and follow me on Substack. Until next time.